Well, do keep your Bibles open to that little passage we just read together. I grew up basically going to church, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, morning and evening, as far back as I can remember, and before that. And uh, I, I remember Sunday evenings in particular. Sunday evenings were very special. They, they always had a, a, resonant, a resonance about them. Something was very mellow. It was an old church building like this. And the wood, lots of wood, wooden benches. At that stage, they had not put pads on the bench. Uh, only certain wealthy people had a regular spot where they sat, and they brought with them pads that were this thick. And I always envied those people who could sit on pads in the pews on a Sunday in church. It seemed to me a luxury, a luxury you are enjoying right now, which will enable you to endure this very long sermon uh, this evening. <clears throat> but I think one of the things about Sunday evening that always struck me as magical were these passages that we read, uh, one we've just read, uh, particularly here in John's Gospel, about the Lord Jesus coming together with His disciples in the evening of the Lord's Day, in the evening of the first day of the week, meeting with them. And it struck me very often, especially when we had communion. And we have com had communion growing up very much the way we'll have it this evening, in the same kind of, very much the same kind of tone and form that we will have this evening. But it struck me that it is in the breaking of the bread, in hearing the words our Lord said to His men on that night in the upper room before the cross, that we meet with Him especially. He is here for us. He is the host, and He is the one who breaks the bread and offers it to us, and then offers us the cup in remembrance of Him. We come this evening to this great passage. It's in the middle, of course, of this chapter in which the Lord Jesus is appearing to various individuals and groups of people on His resurrection. The chapter began by telling the story of the women who went early in the morning to attend to the body of Jesus to finish the preparation for the final burial rite. Uh, the, the picture you have to paint in your mind, this is a new tomb, uh, a new tomb similar to that which has recently been discovered actually in Palestine in the general area of the original tomb of Jesus. Uh, the first action was to cut a hole in the rock and then to bur burrow it out. And initially, there would be three uh, seating areas or three areas, flat surfaces created. The body would be placed in the one facing you as you looked into the tomb. In time, they would keep burrowing into the rock and would uh, create in the walls on either side various places to, ha to land or to, to place many other bodies of the family as as the family grew, that is, the, the dead part of the family grew, uh, you would create more space in the tomb. This was a new tomb, so therefore there would only be that space at the back on which they'd laid the body. The women went to prepare the body for further, for its further preparation for, for burial. And you know the story. <clears throat> the stone is moved, the tomb is empty, all for the grave, but for the grave clothes, Mary Magdalene rushes to tell the men. They come, they inspect it, they see it's empty. They go back to the other disciples. 
Mary stays on her own for a little while, weeping, and she meets the Lord. Well, it's that day that we are returning to. It's that day that we read about here in verse 19, because it's on the evening of that day, the first day of the week. And there are three things we're told happened on that evening. First of all, the Lord came to His disciples. He came to His disciples on that day, the day of the resurrection, the day when the tomb was empty, the day that He appeared to Mary Magdalene. It was the first day of the week. John tells us that. That is absolutely significant for us for several reasons. One, it was the third day after the crucifixion. Jesus had said that on the third day, He would come to see them. He would rise from the dead, and He would come to see them. It was on the first day of the week that became the Christian day of rest and Sabbath, the, the day when they would meet with the Lord, the day they would gather late in the evening, very often after their day's work, in order that they might study the Bible and pray together, have fellowship together, and break bread together in the Lord's table. It was the day they celebrated the new creation, this brand new thing that God had done in raising Jesus from the dead. All the hopes were centered in this new creation that had been brought about by Jesus. And it was on that day that Jesus came and stood among them. How did He manage to come? How did He manage to appear among them when the door, we're told, was locked for fear of the Jews? He didn't knock. He didn't have to open the door. And He most certainly did not go through solid walls. You know that old chestnut. He did none of those things. He was simply there. He appeared. It was as if there is another dimension, and He simply moved from that dimension, the spiritual dimension, which is all around us and we do not, do not see, and He appeared to them through a fold, if you will, in space. Got to bring some kind of space Star Wars analogy to bear here so that you can understand. In other words, Eternity and the realm of the spirit beings is not far away from us at any time. When the Lord Jesus comes again at the end of history, one of the words that's used of His coming is that He will appear. We're told that He's coming, and when He comes, He will appear and be present and seen by everybody, dead and alive. The spirits of dead people will see Him as well as everyone living will see Him. In that upper room, Jesus simply appears to them, and the very language that's used kind of highlights the miraculous dimension of His appearing. He comes to them, He greets them, and then He shows them His hands and side. Why does He do that immediately? For a number of reasons. The first being, He wants them to know this is no ghost. They're not seeing things. They're not hallucinating. Although, by the way, you hallucinate one by one, not as a group. But He's emphasizing to them His 
reality, his physicality. He shows them his hands and side. Later on, Luke tells us that in one of these appearances in the six weeks, when he was appearing to the disciples on one of the occasions, he actually said to them, touch me and see. For a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. He came back to them. He has returned to them in his historic identity as Jesus of Nazareth, echoing the promise that he'd made to them that he would come to them after his death and his resurrection. His scars, he shows them his scars, his wounds. They're the signs of his suffering. But they're also the signs of his victory. In particular, those wounds are the marks of his messianic role. He's come as the Lord's anointed. He's come as the Savior, the one the prophets spoke about, the one whom they have pierced. He appears to them to fulfill that Scripture. And he appears to them as himself. But he did not, on his resurrection, return to his earthly, bodily existence. There is a difference. Had he returned to his earthly, bodily existence, he would have come to the door and knocked the door and asked to get in. But he has appeared to them. There is something different. There is a dimensional difference. There is something unusual that, that, the, that the writer John and those who were there as eyewitnesses are, are struggling to get their heads around. There is something different. Something has changed. It's still him, but there's something different. His earthly body has been raised from the dead, but it's also been transformed. It's been made suitable for eternal purposes. To use the language of the Apostle Paul, in Philippians 3.21, it is the body of His glory. The body of His glory. His glorified body. And it's on the basis now of His glorified status that He now has to make Himself known to His people. He makes Himself known to Mary, you remember, by calling her name, Mary. He makes Himself known here in this incident by showing them His telltale wounds. He makes himself known to a bunch of disciples on their way, a couple of disciples on their way from Jerusalem to Emmaus, as he walks with them by the way and gets to their place in Emmaus, and they sit down to eat food, and he makes himself known to them by breaking bread. He has to make himself known. And then finally, by taking a public leave of them at his ascension into heaven. And during this time, He appears to them in His earthly body, but there's a difference. He's not as accessible as He was before the cross. He's no longer a participant in the normal routine of ordinary human experience as He had been before the cross. He had taught Mary that lesson. Mary Magdalene had been taught directly by the Lord Jesus, that things were different now. Things were different now. But what we do know about the disciples is in spite of this, it tells us 
the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. They experienced the fulfillment of joy that Jesus had promised them. He promised them that in the end, they would be glad. They would be sad for a time. They would sorrow for a period. We read that earlier on in John's gospel. When he was taken away from them, they would be sad, and everyone else would be happy that at last they'd got rid of Jesus of Nazareth. But he had promised them that their gladness would not last long, and that in the end it would be the disciples that would be glad. And here is the answer, the fulfillment. When they saw the Lord, they were glad. They were glad with all of their heart. It's the joy of reunion. It's the joy of realization that everything Jesus had promised has come true. On that first day of the week, the Lord came to them. He doesn't come to us like this today. The Lord Jesus took on one human identity, and in that one human identity, He has one human body, and the human body can only be in one place at one time. Right now, the human body of Jesus is with the Father in heaven, surrounded by angels and archangels and the, and the host of those who've gone before us in their earthly journey and who are with Him, waiting for the day when He will come back again to raise all the dead and transform us and create the new heavens and the new earth. But though Jesus Himself in His physical body does not appear when we meet on the first day of the week, by the Spirit of Jesus, He promises that wherever he, His people are, He will meet with them. He will meet with them. He gives them signs of this meeting, bread and wine, signs of His presence. When we take this bread and wine, we are connected with all the saints of God down through the centuries who have eaten bread and drunk wine in remembrance of Him. We are connected physically in the taking of bread and wine with the first time that happened when it was the Lord who broke the bread and gave it to the disciples. And it was the Lord who took the cup and gave it to His apostles to drink. We are connected to that event because they took the message, they told people that told people that told people that told people that told you. They gave communion to people who gave it to other people who gave it to other people who gave it to you. And we are part of this great movement of the work of God by the Spirit of God, calling men and women from all across the world into fellowship with the Lord Jesus. And by the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus says is the Spirit of Jesus, wherever His people are, there says the Lord Jesus, I am with you always. And because Jesus is both God and man, as the Son of God, He is everywhere at all times by the Spirit with His people. And He is here with us tonight amidst us, our beloved stands wrote Spurgeon, 
and bids us view his wounded hands. He came to these men, and we're told something about these men that night. We're told that they were behind locked doors because they were in fear of the Jews. That is, they were in fear of their lives. So, here's the second thing that Jesus does. He comes to them, and secondly, the Lord spoke to them. The Lord spoke to them. He says to them, do you notice His first words? Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Now, here we have the beginning of a a habit uh, of worship that you find in many of the ancient traditions of the church where when the the people of God were gathered for worship, one of the first things the minister would say to the people is, peace be with you, and the people would reply, and also with you. I'm not suggesting we do that. I'll ask the session, see what they say. They can get into trouble for it. But that's that's where it comes from. It comes from this very passage. He comes to them because they're afraid of the Jews. That's why they're behind closed doors. And on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where they were in fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he'd said this, we're told, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And then Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Now, I want you to notice the the shape of that text there. Look at it very carefully. There are two exclamations of peace. Do you notice that? Two words of peace. It's repeated twice. And in the middle of it, there is the showing of the wounds. That's quite deliberate. The words of peace are spoken around the revelation of the wounds. There is, there is, if you will, a direct correlation between His wounds and our peace. Do you see that? At one, le- at one level, these men could be at peace because He was alive. He was alive, and there He was, back with them again. I mean, just at a natural human level, you can imagine how excited they were, how overwhelmed they were, how full of joy they were, tears running down their face, but tears of joy. Perhaps a bit of perplexity. How did this happen? We saw Him crucified, dead, and buried, and now here He is alive. Isn't that utterly amazing? So, at one level, that would have calmed them down, would have given them some level of peace. But do you notice here this peace that He gives to them, that He speaks to them? is a peace that they can enjoy only because of the wounds, of the wounds. Peace be with you. See the wounds. Peace be with you. Now, the Apostle Paul, uh, in one of his letters in Ephesians, puts it like this. He, Jesus, He, Jesus, is our peace who has made us both one, that is, Jews and Gentiles, one, and has reconciled us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And what Paul is talking about here is this, that Jesus by His wounds, Jesus by His death on the cross, has accomplished peace. 
He has bought peace, if you will. He has established peace. He's overwhelmed all the ancient hostility in himself, in his own body, by his being wounded and by his being crucified. A peace that is accomplished for them on the cross. He is the one who in Isaiah's language was pierced for our transgressions in order that He would accomplish a reconciliation for us on the cross. Think about what Jesus has accomplished for us. He's brought us peace with God. What does sin do? It disrupts our relationship with God. Sin creates a kind of sense of hostility between us and God. You must never be perplexed when you read in the newspaper or you see on television or you hear from one of your friends language that that creates the idea that people are threatened by the Christian message, threatened by Jesus Christ, threatened by our talk of God, threatened by the claims of God on the lives of His people. You should never be surprised by that. In fact, you should be surprised if you don't see that. Because the reality is that in this world, people, nice people, good people, law-abiding people, generous people, kind people, gentle people, nicer people than maybe you are, are in hostility to God. By nature, they're hostile to God. They feel threatened by God. They feel distant from God. And they don't like Jesus' people, not just because sometimes we are not as consistent as we should be, but because fundamentally we keep bringing God before them, rubbing Him in their face. And they're hostile to Him. Maybe you're here this evening and that's where you lie. That's where you are in the story. Hostile. Maybe you didn't realize it was hostility until somebody said something about it that really got up your nose. And then you realize this basic hostility. You distrust God. You don't quite like Him, actually. And that's the fundamental problem of the world. And what Jesus did was come into the world in order to create reconciliation between God and us. Because, you see, the fundamental problem is not that people are hostile to God. The, The real problem is that God is hostile to people. It's not just that I need to try and persuade you to be reconciled to God. It is that Jesus died in order to reconcile God to us. God did the business for us. God did not say to us, you do this and everything will be okay. You do that and we'll forget about the problem. No, God took on our humanity in order to deal with the consequences of our being in hostility against God. He took the the punishment for that. He took the blame for that. He took the shame for that and the guilt of that on Himself. And He was pierced through for our transgressions. And so He came to bring peace, to make peace through the blood of His cross. That's the language of the New Testament. He made peace through the blood of His cross. 
He brought us to God. He gives access to God, to those who believe in Him. So there's peace with God. But it's not only that we're hostile against God, we are by nature hostile towards one another. The great hostility in the, in the first century was between Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles. In the early church, Christianity began as a Jewish movement and soon started attracting people who weren't Jews who became Christians and so on, and, and they brought their way of life with them. And there was a Jewish way of life that was inherited by those who'd become Christians from a Jewish background, and the two things clashed massively. They just didn't get on. I mean, these people didn't eat kosher food. These people did. And so there was this kind of clash of cultures. And one of the things that happened very early on, very early on, is that in Christ these clashing cultures were reconciled. Paul talks about it using the language of the temple. In the temple there was a wall that was known as the wall that excluded the Gentiles. If you were a Gentile and you converted to Judaism, you could come and you could stand in the court of the Gentiles, but you dare not go any nearer to the temple. You stayed put where you belonged. And the wall was a demarcation line that kept you from being really part of the believing community. And Paul's referring to that wall when he says this, Jesus by His blood, Jesus by His wounds, has broken down that wall, broken down the wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles in order to reconcile us all to God. So one of the things we discover when we come to Jesus is we find not only that we have peace with God, but we have peace with one another. All the old hostilities that existed between us are all put to one side in Christ Jesus. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither Republican nor Democrat. There is neither conservative nor labor. <laughs> there is neither black nor white. There is neither this or that. We are all one in Christ Jesus. Every other issue is excluded when we come to the table of our Lord Jesus. And not only is there peace with God and peace with one another, there's peace in our own souls. The peace of consciences dealt with. The blood of Christ purifies, purifies our conscience, Hebrews 9 tells us. We have peace with God, and we know the peace of God that passes all understanding. Peace of God is something that can survive when our circumstances are going bad. It gives us that sense of calm trust that God is on the throne. The Lord came and He spoke to them. Peace. This evening, I want to preach to you, to your heart, the gospel of peace. I want to tell you that, that the Lord Jesus Christ can put you right with God so that you can join us at this table and enjoy the benefits of the gospel by believing in Jesus. I want you to know that, that when you accept Jesus Christ, He becomes so important that all the other things that separate us and divide us and make us war with one another can be put to one side and that Jesus is all in all. And I want you to know that the Lord Jesus spells, speaks peace into the heart of His people. To give us equanimity in the midst of all of the, all of the 
resurgent movement of the world that is troubled like a troubled sea, He gives peace in our hearts. So the Lord came to them, and the Lord spoke to them. And thirdly, the Lord breathed on them. After that second, peace be with you. Jesus says to these disciples who were apparently the apostles particularly, Jesus says to them this, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. We've heard this language before in John's gospel. Jesus is going to send the apostles out in the same way that in the Old Testament, God sent the prophets. God sends the prophets, and Jesus sends the apostles. And Jesus sends the apostles to do what God sent the prophets to do. He sends them with the Word of God. We saw this in chapter 17 when the Lord Jesus sanctifies the apostle. He sets them apart. In that chapter, He prays for Himself, and then He prays for the apostles, and He says to the Father, I've manifested Your name to them. I've given them Your Word. Sanctify them. Make them holy apostles, just as You sanctified the prophets and made them holy prophets, and You gave them Your Word. You put Your Word on their mouth. Put Your Word on their mouth. Your Word is truth. And then in the third section of John 17, He prays for us, and He prays for all of us who will believe in Him through their message. The church, you see, is an apostolic church. It is built on the foundation not only of the prophets of the Old Testament, but on the apostles of the New Testament. That's the background. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. That's why the book of Acts is called the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Because the book of Acts is about the continuing sent ministry of Jesus through the apostles. One of the things about the book of Acts, what it's demonstrating is Jesus' ministry continues through the apostles. People saw that, not just because they preached the same stuff Jesus preached, but they did the same things Jesus did, the same miracles that Jesus did, they did. The same signs and wonders Jesus performed, they performed them. People took note of these men by what they did, the miracles they performed. They took note of these men that they had been with Jesus. And from the earliest days, the church understood that these men were different. These men were unparalleled. These men were irreplaceable. These apostles were giving them the word of Jesus, were continuing the ministry of Jesus. He had came to come to reach the world, and these men were going to go into all the world. Thomas would go as far as China. One of them, Nathaniel, maybe, went as far as the British Isles. They got as far as Spain, down to Ethiopia and beyond, deep into Africa, up towards Russia. They planted churches in Syria that still exist in India that still exist. They just went out and never came back. And it's on those men the church is built. 
Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he'd said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, some people make a mistake with this text. They conflate it, this episode, with the later event of Pentecost. They're two different events. Pentecost is the birth of the church, and it marks a significant shift in redemptive history. This is directed, this event, is directed towards the apostles continuing and extending Jesus' own ministry of revelation of the Word. His mission is now their mission in the power of His Spirit. He had promised them this in John's Gospel in chapter 14, 15, 16. He had promised them the Holy Spirit. He said, when I go, the Spirit will come to you. He will remind you of everything I said and did. He will lead you into all truth. Things I couldn't tell you, He will tell you. He will expand it. He'll even tell you things to come. And He breathes upon them His Spirit so that they might finish the revelation started by the Lord Jesus. And you can see that that's exactly their ministry. Receive the Holy Spirit. And that last verse, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. They were charged with a massive responsibility. And how did they see that responsibility? How does this come to pass? Notice it's focused on their authority. If you forgive them, they are forgiven. If you retain their sins, they are retained. What was this power and authority? Well, we go to the book of Acts and we find out. Day of Pentecost. Peter stands up. He stands up as one of the apostles, the leader of the apostles. He tells the crowd that they were the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and ministry, but also of His death and resurrection. He tells them that God has highly exalted Jesus. And He says this to them, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the apostles understood this authority as the authority to pronounce in Jesus' name pardon to those who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus. That's how they understood this. It's in the proclamation of the gospel that we say to people, that I say to you this evening, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins will be forgiven, remitted, pardoned. If you reject Jesus, you retain your sin, therefore you remain under condemnation, and I can offer you no comfort. I do that with the apostolic authority of the apostolic word. But this evening, I want to invite you to believe in Jesus, to trust in Him. The risen Lord Jesus Christ who comes to us by His Spirit and who puts before us these memorials of His passion, 
and who causes the Word of God to be spoken in your hearing this evening. And the promise of that Word, on the basis of the apostolic teaching, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Done deal. Believe in Him, will you? Trust in Him. Right now, tonight, this moment. No hoops to go through. That's the word of assurance, the word of promise. Turn from sin, turn to Him, trust in Him, rest upon Him, and you will be saved. Father, we pray that You would, by Your Holy Spirit, write Your Word on our hearts. In Jesus' strong name we pray. Amen.